Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, church here at Essex. Good morning at North Avenue. Uh, folks at home, some of you uh, are watching home this morning because you knew it was going to rain. Uh, we did, apparently didn't know that. <clears throat> some of you kind of skated your way in. When I came in, it wasn't anything. And I was sitting here preaching in the uh, earlier service, and I'm watching people slip by the door back there. So hopefully nobody got hurt. And you are here. Good morning to you, and thank you for being here. I kind of laugh as I was watching the announcements backstage. Uh, I was thinking about the uh, men's ministry's uh, Christmas tree bonfire. If you're going to go to that, make sure you get there on time, because once they light it, it's going to be very quick. Um, I can, all, all I can picture is these things going woof and, uh, and being out. So get there on time. You don't want to miss the show when it gets, uh, gets lit. But participate in all those things. I got a couple quick things for you. Uh, one, just upcoming events. So we have Night to Shine coming up. You've heard about that. I want to challenge you again. But two different things. One, you can volunteer. Uh, but not just volunteer, one of the things that we were talking about this past week that kind of clicked when we thought about it is the idea that families could volunteer, the whole families. We have not been able to do that in the past, being in to, inside at a, at, a, uh, at a venue like the hotel, uh, because of the fact that uh, we can't have young children there and <clears throat> what's necessary as far as background checks, all those things. Well, those things aren't in place for a drive, drive-through one, and we need actually you know, all sorts of people cheering, cheering them on. So families, you could come as a family, uh, but, but remember a couple of things. You are outside, so make sure uh, you, can, you dress warm, and if you have younger children, make sure that you're keeping them safe. Of course, there's traffic and all those kind of pieces that we would be very concerned about. But it is an opportunity for families to come together and to be able to do that. The other thing would be donations towards Night to Shine. Uh, we haven't really pressed the donations simply because not being at a venue, at a venue it costs like about $30,000 to do it. Um, this cost is considerably less, but still thousands because we still give out crowns and all those things for all the participants. So if you can donate towards that, that's a great, great help and a great cause. Two other things about donations. One, I just want to let you know that uh, for Christmas we, we had donations for, for the gift cards that went out. Uh, over $11,000 came in for those. I want you to know that the impact is significant. Uh, we now get to hear their stories come back. The, the letters that we receive uh, from different agencies, different schools. Uh, some of you have been a part of that because if we have someone that's in a school district or an area uh, and you have a connection, we'll give the cards to you to deliver because we're, we're trying to be you know, neighbors to where we live. And so we've had people come back, tell us the stories. Uh, one of our folks shared the story that they were sitting down with one of the people in the, I think, the, I think nurse's office, uh, and that person sharing with them with tears saying we've got, and this is, these are in, in school districts where you would think this would be the case, but they sat there and said, we've got a family, we're giving these to one family, they're living out of their car, homeless. Um, and it just strikes you again for the need that is there and that we get to be a part of and meeting that need. And so I just want to say to you, thank you. The, the, it is profound. And those cards that we give out don't have our name on it, nothing like that. Um, it's just amazing how we have gone in just quietly to say we want to do this for you as a school to reach into these kids' lives. And the, the different agencies are so open to talk about the church uh, wanting to help people, and yet we go in with no other, other motive than to simply meet that need. And so I, I say that just so you know the, the results of that and my thanks. The other piece I want you to know about as well is today is M25 Day as we collect food. And as you might know or may remember, <laughs> that um, we, were, we, we began M25 
about the time, and we're coinciding with the time where we knew the Williston food shelf was starting, and they were just getting started. Essex didn't have a food shelf, and so we decided we had property in Essex, in, in Williston. They were starting a food shelf, so we decided to start with them, and we actually began the process with them. And uh, over time, that be- the beginning of the, the Wilson Food Shelf, it has grown into a, a very successful food shelf, sharing the food that we bring with other places because they really have it down really, really well. And in the past year, we have been working with them to transfer the food that we take to them to Aunt Dot's place, which is here in Essex, which actually they were a part of starting. The Wilson Food Shelf was a part of getting the Aunt Dot's food shelf off the ground. And so we've been transitioning. They know that. They've been a part of it. And this Sunday, this is the first Sunday that all of our collections will go exclusively to Aunt Dot's. And from this point forward, all of our food will go to Aunt Dot's place, which is here in Essex. I want to uh, read this letter to you. That came to Pastor Jim uh, this past week from the folks from the Williston Community Food Shelf. Uh, Dear Pastor Jim and Alliance Church members, please accept my sincere and heartfelt thanks on behalf of the entire Williston Community Food Shelf family for the donation of many, many, many hundreds of boxes and bins that you have all donated to the Williston Community Food Shelf over these past 10 years. Over the years, your congregation has provided us with a consistent and abundant monthly donation. When you first began donating to us, you and your congregation were the only donations that we could count on on a regular basis. We knew that on the first Sunday of every month, your generous congregation would provide food for our clients. There were many months that your congregation was our only donation. We completely understand your decision to now channel your monthly donation to Aunt Dot's place in Essex. Your congregation was vital to our success And I know it will be as much of a blessing for Aunt Dots as it has been for us. Thank you also for the the gift cards, the, the money gift card certificates that you gave to us for our 2021 annual turkey drive. We were able, because of those cards, we're able to provide turkeys for all of our clients for both Thanksgiving and for Christmas holidays. The Williston Community Food Shelf is so very blessed to have had all of you as one of our community partners, we would not have been nearly as successful without your generosity. We truly appreciate your efforts over the years, and we wish you all good health and happiness in 2002. Virginia B. Morton, president of the Williston Community Food Shelf. Uh, I want to say something to you that uh, is actually quite moving to me, and one of the things that I appreciate so much about our church. I won't say it's the most, the, the most thing I appreciate, but I would say it is one of those things, and that is that our church, you as members of our church, we have done acts like this. We've done things like the food shelf and the gift cards, and we don't do it for notoriety. We don't post it. We don't put it out there. Uh, In fact, we'll talk about it here so you know what you've done and how you've contributed. But I just love about our church that we're not out there in social media posting things. At different times, people will say, hey, you got to put that on there, $11,000. Put that out there. Let people see. Take some pictures of us doing X, Y, or Z. Put it out there for people to see. And we've always said, nope, that's that's not who we are. And there are churches that post every single thing they do. I'm not trying to knock them in any way. I'm so glad to be a part of a church that says, hey, we're just going to do this, and we don't care who knows, because the one who needs to know knows, and that's him. Uh, And the things that we do, the food shelf things, um, the the gift cards, they aren't stamped with Essex Lance Church on them. They simply go because it's the right thing to do. You give to gift cards, never knowing the full story of where they're going to go, what impact they'll have, and yet you do that. 
And so I, I thank you for that. There's impact to be had. And um, our leaders all consistently through time have said, no, we're not, putting our, we're not taking pictures and putting it out there. We're just, we'll tell you about it, keep you informed. We're just going to keep doing the things that we think Jesus would do and how he'd have us do it. So my thanks to, to you for that. This morning, we're going to continue in how, talking about how to have a great new year. I really don't mean to say that in some trite way, you know, hey, have a great new year. But I will say to you that as the year progresses, whether it's a good or a bad year is really going to be based on you and not based on the circumstances. A great new year, see, we look at having a great year, either a great last year or a great new year. We oftentimes look at that on the basis of, well, what things happened in our lives. We look back at the events and go, oh, it was a really good year, bad events, really bad year. And I would suggest that's a bad indicator of a good year. Having a great new year, having a good new year, if you will, is not contingent upon the events that take place in your life. Though that's how we look at it. So I want to change that up a little bit this morning. We talked last week... (coughs) Uh, and the starting place about this, remembering as we go through this new year, whatever happens to us, remember what we have in God. That's the starting place. Because we talked about Philippians, it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, rejoice always. And most of us kind of groan at that, rejoice always. How do we pull that off? Well, you pull that off by having the perspective of what God has done for you. When you know what you have in Jesus, then it helps you to look at anything and then rejoice. Perspective's everything. And I would suggest to you that perspective is so key. And that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about looking at what God's done for us, looking at what we have in him, that changes perspective. I'll give you this example, not to pat myself on the back in any way, but I, I, I'm a perspective guy. My family knows this, that oftentimes uh, when I'm dealing with something, I try to find perspective. I try to get a perspective that puts it in the better light than what I'm just living in. I'll put it in this context for you so you'll know. So I share with you back in August, our, you know, Diane and I came down with COVID. It was mild, so we're thankful for that, but we had COVID, and so because it hit us at different times, and then my son who got it, who also came to stay with us, so he didn't get his family sick, so we had about 33 days worth of quarantine at home, which I'm going to do a series on marriage, because if you go through 33 days of confinement in marriage, and you come out of that, I got something to tell you, Um, and so, you know, we, we did that for 33 days. That we stayed at home, stayed away from everybody, walked all through that. But one of the lingering things of COVID, and I'm the only one that, in the family that has this, is since, since August to now, I still can't taste. I can't taste food. I can smell kind of. Um, I can be upstairs and my wife can put toast in and I can smell toast. And it's like, oh, toast. But if I go downstairs with my head over the toaster, I got nothing. So I can get close to it and not smell at all, but if I'm off, I get these faint smells and taste. I don't have any taste. Now, that's at least better than when it first hit, when I, when I first had it, it's not that I couldn't taste. Everything tasted like gasoline. I mean, everything like t- tasted like you're just eating chemicals. Uh, Coca-Cola, to this, to, this, to this day, you can drink a Coke and it just tastes like I'm drinking kerosene. And people would say, well, that's, you know, that's good for you. We just shut up. Um, I, uh, I don't like it. I don't like that, that flavor. At least now, other than that one, the things don't taste bad, but I still don't have taste. And I've, I kind of take a good look at me. You know, COVID came. Now, listen, I, please, I'm not trying to minimize COVID. But in our case, it came. It was pretty mild. And we have to be home for 33 days or 30 days. And so I'm thinking, man, I get to watch TV for 30 days. I get to catch up and binge all the shows I wanted to watch for 30 days because I can't leave. And I get to eat. Well, I'm sick and tired of TV. And I couldn't eat because everything tastes horrible. So it made it a tough time. And there are times from August to now, I like food. I love to cook. I'm so tired of cooking and saying to everybody else, I can't tell me, what, I, what do I got to do? I don't know, it tastes good or bad. I can't tell. 
And so there are times when I just get so down about it. It's like, ah, oh, I wish I could taste. And I, I, and I mean this so sincerely. This is not a, a bragging moment, but I'm a perspective guy. And it hit me along about Thanksgiving time. I'm looking at my family. They all love Jesus. They're serving Jesus, which doesn't get any better than that. And it hit me. And I've said this to the family, not with pride, but with genuine sense of, 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 of reality. If I never taste food again, I am a blessed man. That's called perspective. And in my life, often I do that. I, I got to find perspective. And so understanding what you have in God is the way that you go through a, da- a bad moment or a difficult year, perhaps, and rejoice always because in the middle of the pain, you stop and remember what you have, which gives you perspective. So as we've been talking about leading up to today, we talked about that. We talked about having those moments where, where we, we grab a hold of who God is, focus on him and have a changing thing. And then this morning, we're going to take a little different look. Now, the different look I'm going to look at is this. A lot of things in our lives, I want to talk about redefining moments. I want to talk about moments in your life that are defining moments or redefining moments. There's a lot of things in our life that can define us. Uh, we can, our, our lives can be defined by great moments such as, such as great achievements, great accomplishments, great success, great talents, uh, talents, great events will happen, some big event happens in your life, and, and those moments can define you. You can really you know, climb the career ladder, have a moment where you get recognized for that success. Those are defining moments. But they're not only defined by great moments, our lives also can be defined by bad moments, difficult moments, moments of loss where we've lost things along the way, where there's been a battle along the way, something that's happened that has crushed us, that has hurt us. And these moments, as they will come in our lives, whether they're the great moments or whether they're the tragedies that happen and our tragedies of brokenness, when those things happen, they, they, either one can make the distinction of definition whether it goes good or bad. We have these tragedies in our lives, and I would say, in fact, deep wounds and deep heartaches can really define a person, but whether that definition is good or bad is really up to you. And so the real question is, in the year that's ahead of us, and the events that are yet to come in your life, or the events that you're going through in your life right now, the real question is, how will those moments define you? Will they be great moments of definition that you, you love to talk and see about, or will they be painful moments of defining your life or redefine your life? If you've been here at any length of time, you've heard me say at different times, that divorce in your history does not have to define you. That addiction to drugs or that addiction to alcohol does not have to define you. Your past mistake, your past decisions, they do not have to define you. But all of these moments and even more of these moments actually can redefine you for the better if you make that decision and choice. Now, folks, I'm no prophet But in this coming year, there are going to be a lot of bad moments in our lives. I'm not prophetic. I'm just a realist. And we don't have to talk about the good moments because we welcome those. We don't have to get ready for those. But there are going to be some bad moments. Some moments that are going to hit us this coming year that will be completely out of our control. Completely out of our control. Other things, those moments will come directly because of our bad behavior. Directly because of our decisions. And I want to talk about these moments, and let's talk about how we can make these, these incredible redefining moments. This morning, I want to talk, uh, walk you through two Bible stories, one story about a guy, one about a woman. 
And then with the guys, I'll walk through the story about this guy, and I'll give some application specifically to men, and then I'll switch over and we'll talk about the story about this woman and application specifically to women. Now, please know when I do that, that is not the license for you to check out, depending on who I'm talking to. So I'm talking to the men, I got some applications, women, that's not your cue to go, oh, I'll just tune out, and I'll just tune back in a couple minutes. Because the applications are for all of us, of course, but I'm going to kind of fine-tune them towards, towards the men or to the women, depending on the story. So the first story is about a man. It's in Mark chapter 3. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. I grew up in the, the, in the church, King James Version, said a withered hand. A shriveled hand or a withered hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Let me give you a quick, uh, quick tip as we're going to walk through this. Let me give you a quick tip how to read the Bible. Oftentimes, one of the most enduring questions people ask through the years is, uh, I'm reading the Bible, but it's just not coming to life for me. You know, how, give me some tips. I'll give you one of the best tips that you can do for how you have understanding the Bible and for how the Bible can come to life for you when you read it. Whenever you're reading a narrative story such as this, a story about someone, whenever you're reading a narrative passage, always make it a point to put yourself in the story and put yourself in it from many different points of view. Uh, you know, be a person in the crowd watching. Be a person over in the corner who's watching the people's faces. Be the main character. Put yourself in the place of the main character. I mean, I do that often in my devotions, but I do it in preaching because that's what helps bring it to life if I can somehow get into the story so I begin to think in terms of what it would be like to be there, to see it, observe it, but what would it be like to experience it. So let's talk about this man. We know little to nothing about this man except that he is defined by his brokenness. He's defined by the fact that he has a withered hand or a shriveled up hand. He is defined by a label. He's got a label. And we talked about labels before Christmas. Yet Rahab the prostitute. With this guy, we've got the guy with a shriveled hand. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he lives. We don't know how old he is. Um, was this a, a deformity from birth? Was this an accident that happened? Is this some kind of sickness that we don't we know anything about that? And we don't even know his name. All we know is that he is defined by his brokenness. He's the man with the shriveled or the withered hand, and it defines him. Now, I'd also note that Luke also records this same story. So we're looking at Mark, but the book of Luke, Luke also records the story, and he adds one other piece of information that is helpful for us. And in Luke's account, he says not only was his hand shriveled, but it was his right hand. You say, well, is that significant? Well, it is if you stand back and know a little bit of the culture, because in the culture, the right hand had great, great cultural impact and significance. You see, the right hand had, had represented in that culture, represented friendship. If an enemy was coming at you or you're going to have a meeting with an enemy, um, it was war unless you put your hand out. And which hand did you put out? Put your right hand out. And they would shake. And they would do it. they have a custom they'd go through. But it was the right hand. You'd never do it with the left hand. With the left hand, you know you're probably going to die because it didn't mean friendship. Right hand meant something. It was the mark of friendship. The right hand was, represented strength, represented power. The right hand represented fruitfulness and success. But additionally, probably most important, the right hand was always viewed as the, the representation of blessing. When a father 
would put his blessing upon his children. He would have the child come and stand before him and he'd take his right hand and put his right hand on the child's head or shoulders and give his blessing. When the priest would do a blessing over the people, the priest would raise his right hand. May God bless you. May he keep you. May he prosper you. Right hand. That sign of blessing. You might recall as the disciples oftentimes fought with Jesus as to who'd be the greatest. The lead question was, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, who's going to sit on your right side? Why? Because that's the place of power. That's the seat of power. All these things represented were seen and wrapped up in this word withered or shriveled in his right hand. And clearly the blessing of God was not on this guy's life by the cultural standards of the day. Now, here he is in church. He's in the synagogue. Now, in his case, he was in church, and you can hide a withered hand for a while, but not very long, right? I mean, if you've got a a deformed hand and you go out in public, there are things you can do to kind of hide it. But over time, someone's going to see it. He's in church. I would expect maybe he's tried to kind of not display his hand, but keep it hidden. But you can't do that very well. Now, bring that up to today. I wonder how many men are in our churches today, in our church this morning, here at this time, at North Avenue. I wonder how many men are sitting in church, but in their lives, they've got some dream, something about them that's withered up and dried. Some dream, some hope that they had, some issue of fulfillment, some issue of fruitfulness, of friendship, of of belonging that's broken and withered. Maybe it's a marriage that's dying on the vine. Maybe it's the hope of getting married or married again in your life, which seems to be dead. Maybe it's a dream that is withering. Uh, These things can be redefining moments in our lives. Now, I have to admit that I use the word withering because it has has some meaning to me. Now, I I think of withering more than shriveled up only because I grew up with that King James Version as a kid, so the withered hand. But I also, for some reason, I connect it with plants because a withered up plant... um, kind of gives me the sense of it's just a slow process. So I've got three married children, and it, with each of the children as they've gotten married, now I always, we always have a garden and do tomato plants and all those kind of things. When every one of our kids got married, it would seem that we were around them at springtime, whether they lived in the area or not, we were at least with them at springtime. And like our daughter in Pennsylvania, I would be down there, and their spring came early. So oftentimes, we'd go down there for a visit, and I would buy my tomato plants down there, and I kind of liked the tomato plants early, so I'd buy big pots anyway, but I would buy them some. All my kids, all my grown kids, I bought them tomato plants. And I would give them to them and say, listen, just water it. All you do is water it. You know, you do anything else. If I put fertilizer in it for you, just water it. And I give them in big pots because I, I'm guessing that they're probably not going to take the time to go find a place and tilt a garden and bury it. So I said, so listen, you can leave it in the pot. It's fine. Just water it. Every one of my kids, I come for a visit, and there's these dead, dying, withered plants sitting on their patios and their deck. And I'll walk up and touch it, and it's like, it's like dust. And I'll go, listen, you know, one of them, I walked into my, you know, son's house. Um, I wasn't going to say who, but my son's house and his wife. And I walk up, and here's this horrible-looking, shriveled-up, dead thing. And on it is one little red tomato. And it's almost like this tomato is screaming out, you can't kill me. You know, I, I look at it, I'm just going, oh, you poor thing. And it's kind of like, you, you, when you look at it close, you can see the little thing down there going, you know, it's like, you're not going to kill me. So I go to them, I say, listen, you just, a little water. Yeah, we forget. I mean, it's right there. So anyway, we throw them out 
And we start over the next spring. There's always the hope of a new day. So with the hope of the new day, I give them, you know, I give them their plant, you know. I say, you get one more shot. And so I go back to the same house, the plant. I look at my son's house and daughter-in-law Eva's house, and I'm looking at it, and this thing is just looking horrible. I mean, again, it's kind of like, guys, all you got to do is water it. My son goes, I water it every day. And then, and then Eve goes, yeah, me too. Uh-oh. So you walk out and pick up the plant and go, and it's just saturated, withering to death. So when I hear the word wither, I get this picture of something that doesn't want to die, but it's going through a slow death. And I'm just thinking that there are men in our church this morning, whether here or online, that have some part of their life, some dream, some area, something where it's kind of withering up and dying, even though you don't want it to happen or be the case. And do you realize that in these moments where something just might be dying, withering up, that can be an incredible moment of change with God. That experience that you're dealing with, that experience that could happen or is happening right now or is yet to happen, whether it's your loss of a spouse, whether it's a job, a child, your health, whatever it may be, those moments can be the moments where you look back on them and others can look back at them and say, wow, what a moment in their life. Where people might look back and say, man, she walked out on him and I thought that was going to be the end of him, but man, look at his life. Look what he has done with it. He's, she lost a husband, and, and I thought that would be the end of her. Man, look at her. It's incredible. Whatever it is that has happened, whatever it is that's happening right now, whatever it is that might happen, you need to know whether it happened a long time ago, is still current, yet to come, whatever it is, it's going to be a defining moment for you. How it defines you is going to be your choice. So I want to do something with the men now. I mean, everyone can do this, but men specifically, you guys, I want you in this moment to be the guy in the story. Uh, just be the guy in the story. Don't stand in the corner and watch it. You're the guy in the story. You're this guy, and here you, were, here you are in church. You know the condition that you're in. Even though you might be hiding it, the withered arm's hidden, but even though it's hiding it, you know the condition of your own heart. You know that withered dream, that thing that you struggle with. You know the issue with the job or the health, whatever it might be. And the question I have first is, what do you usually do with what broken parts of our lives? Do we put them out there in public display? No. What do we do? We hide them. We bury them. We somehow want to keep them secret. We don't proudly display them. We hide them. We cover them up. We don't want to stand out. We want to blend in. So if we do come to church, we come to church, we get our seat, we quietly sit there, and we sit back and hide, get through it, and get on our way. Jesus walks into the story. Bible says this guy's already in church. He's already in the synagogue. Jesus walks into the story. Now note, this guy was in the synagogue before Jesus got there, and it wasn't like he was in the synagogue saying, heal me, heal me. He wasn't crying out to be healed. He's just there. Now, we don't know why he's there. It's the Sabbath. Maybe he's just really spiritual. He just wants to worship. Maybe he had heard Jesus was going to be there. But regardless of why he's there, I think it's safe to say that if he wanted to be healed, and, I, and who wouldn't, he certainly was not there crying out to be healed. Uh, and we certainly know that he was not known for his wanting to be healed. So you're in church and Jesus walks in. Now catch this. Jesus walks in, and instead of Jesus looking at you, noticing your hand, and quietly moving on so as to not put pressure on you, what's he do? He gets in front of the room and then calls you out. 
And he doesn't know your name, so all he can do is say, hey, you got a guy with a bad hand. Now, in that moment, he's doing the exact opposite of what you'd want him to do. Because you want, you want, to, you want to be anonymous. You don't want to stand out. You don't want to be called out. And he shouts out to you, hey, you, with a bad hand, stand up. So, how do you feel? How do you feel in that moment? How do you feel in that moment? Thanks a lot, Jesus. Appreciate that. This is great. It's just what I wanted is to stand up in the middle of this thing. Thanks for making me a spectacle when all I wanted to do was just blend in. Now, you have a choice. You can stand up or you can storm out. Your call. But you stay. And then, you know, when you do stand up, question for you, what do you do with your bad hand? You hide it. Because that's what we do. We don't take that which is broke on us and put it on display. We bury it. So you stand up kind of hiding that hand. And wouldn't you know, Jesus not only says you to stand up, but then he goes, hey, and while you're standing, put out that deformed hand for me. Stretch that hand right out here. Now, make sure you get this. Jesus tells the guy to stand, and he does. And then he says, put out your hand, and he does. It does not say that he acted in faith. What it tells us is the man responds with one key word, obedience. Does not say faith. We have nothing that says this man even knew Jesus beforehand, maybe knew of him. Doesn't know he's not a follower of Jesus. Nope, he's just obedient. He did what Jesus told him to do. He stood up and he put out his hand and he put his hand out it was completely restored to normal. That step of obedience became, catch this, that step of obedience became his new defining moment. It's an incredible story if you look at it that way. That became his new defining moment. In, in, in that moment, there's so much expressed by him simply being obedient. He is no longer defined by brokenness or a withered hand. He is no longer defined by his incapacity. In that moment, he is now going to be defined by a miracle, and it's going to be his miracle. Obedience is always the first step toward a redefined life. Now, before we go on to the next story, some quick applications that we learned from this guy and some key applications for us if we would have redefining moments. The first one is this. We get it from the story. If you want to read God to do a redefining moment in your life, you have to take a stand. Now, the stand we're talking is not, is, not, is not what some of you are thinking about. It's about time you stood for the truth. No, no, no. Well, I'll say, yeah, stand for the truth. But we're asking you to stand for the truth about what's really going on in your life. See, the step to a redefined moment is the man stands up. It doesn't matter who's watching it doesn't matter who might see. It doesn't matter your image or the fact that it feels awkward. Because for a lot of men, they won't take the step of obedience because it's going to be awkward to do that. People might actually see me for who I am. That first step here is to take that stand. You have to own it. You have to own the brokenness. Own that which for you know, guys, here's the issue. Own that for which you know is the heart of the issue that you struggle with. You have to bring it into, the, into light, that which we work so hard to keep in darkness. See, that's the issue right there, right? 
The stuff that holds us back, we always try to keep it in the darkness. But if you want to be set free from it, if you want to be redefined in your life by some moment, then put into the light that which normally our intuitive sense is, let's just keep this in darkness. We want to be that new person, and we stand up and take a stand. The second thing we see is you take a risk. Jesus says, stretch out your hand, which means you move against your weakness, and you move against your fear, you move against that, that, that instinct you have to be safe and, and don't do anything, but instead take a risk. You move against that old definition of your life because God is going to stretch you into a new definition of your life, but you take risk. I think it's interesting, Jesus told this guy to do something that in fact this guy had probably longed to do, stretch out his hand. Jesus asked this guy to do something which he has not been able to do for years, maybe ever. And Jesus told him to do something, think about this, Jesus told him to do something, to do that thing, not just something, but do that thing that both in his head and his heart he longed to do but could not do it. Think about that. Up to that moment, anybody could say, stretch out your hand. And though he would long to do that, it's something that's impossible for him to do. Because it was withered. And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. Guys, what might that be in your life? And what might it look like for you in your life, for you to stand up, to own that which is broken, to take that risk in some area of your life? What would that look like in your marriage? What would that look like in your relationships? What would that look like in your family life, in your career? What would that look like in your giving to God, your, your spending, your resource? What would that look like to God in your spiritual life, in your secret life? What would that look like to you? Now, as we're thinking about that, let's switch over and talk about the women for a moment, to which the women are going, no, 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 stay there, stay there. Talk about the men more. No, we're going to keep moving on. Let's talk about the women for just a moment. Let's look at this woman in the story. She's in Luke chapter 13. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who'd been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When, she saw, when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up, and she praised God. So here's the story. Another Sabbath day, another day at church, Jesus is teaching. And the story tells us there's a woman there. She too was there before Jesus got there, so it appears. And this time it's a woman. Same deal, we know nothing about her. It uh, doesn't, doesn't say that she wanted to be healed. doesn't say that she was shouting to be healed. Nothing like that. She's just at church. But what is similar, she too is defined by her brokenness. We have no descriptive answer to her other than she's a woman who's bent over. And she's been, been, been bent over for 18 years. She cannot straighten up at all. Tells us that she was crippled, couldn't straighten up, and her life has been this way for at least 18 years. Now, so think about this, 18 years. 18 years ago, it had been 2004. So now, just think about it. Everyone can do this, but women, think about this. 2004, where were you? What were you doing in January of 2004? But more importantly, in the past 18 years, how has your life changed? What's different today than 2004? How has your life been monumentally, fundamentally changed in your life in those past 18 years? Now, for some of you, um, you weren't even born yet, got that, major change there. But for others of us that have been around for those 18 years, you can think back over 18 years and there's been significant change. You can look back and say, you know, I was still married 18 years ago. I was not sick 18 years ago. So think back over time. And again, no name, no history. We don't know why she's in church. We don't know her age. 
She could have been there and been 28 years old. She could have been there and been 88 years old. But we do know this. At least 18 years ago, something profound happened in her life. Her health was taken. Her health was taken. She's bent over, crippled over. We don't know why. So she too is broken. And she has a label defined by her condition. Years ago when I was a kid, we went every summer to ten, for 10 days to a camp in Rome, New York called Delta Lake. Uh, I share with you that we didn't go on vacation. We, my parents didn't have a lot of money. Vacation was something you just didn't have money to go do. So our vacation was 10 days to family camp at Delta Lake. I love that place. Grew up at camp. Uh, I've, been, I've been back at that camp. I, we started going when I was two years old. My parents helped start the youth program there, youth camps. And I've been there ever since. I've been there at least a day uh, ever, ever since been back to camp. My folks have a little cab, had a little cabin there that now both, of course, have gone to be with Jesus. But I was at this camp at Rome, New York, Delta Lake, and there was a guy there that had this same kind of sickness, completely bent over at the waist. I mean, completely bent over. He could not look, he could not look up, he could not straighten up, completely bent over. When he walked, he saw just what was this far in front of him. If he wanted to see forward, he had to turn to his side because he was completely bent over and couldn't straighten up. So I, I, I get the picture a little least because I, I know him and I, I watched him. This is the condition of this woman. From her perspective, from her point of view, she was small, she was diminished, she was depressed, shrunk down, and diminished in capacity and size. She was defined by her life circumstance. And she was always this way. Now, we don't know if she's always this way since birth, but when I say always this way, meaning this, this is her lot in life now. At least for 18 years, this is her lot in life. Uh, if she had known a better way before this, this is what she now lives with every single day. She has no view of the future. She has no hope for what's ahead. All she can see is what is immediately in front of her. Women, unfortunately, through the years of counseling, I've counseled far too many women who have walked into my office or have called me on the phone with a broken story where they said, my husband walked out because he doesn't love me anymore. Women who I've talked to who are looking at a future, who've lost a spouse, something's happened in their life where they just can't see a future, they can't see tomorrow, can't see hope. Can't see hope in the husband they lost, can't see hope in the hope to have a husband. They just don't have a future. They can't see a future, it's very dark. Years ago, I heard this woman speak. Her name was Dory Van Stone. In fact, I heard her speak when I was in college. They brought her in and spoke one day. Dory Van Stone, you can write it down because she wrote a book. If you can get a copy of that book, read this book. Uh, she's now since gone home with Jesus. But Dory Van Stone, she wrote this book called Dory, A Girl Nobody Loved. And she shared her story. In fact, years later, we had her come to our church and speak. She stayed in our home for two days. In fact, it dawned, on me, it dawned on me after the first service this morning that she was in our house, staying in our house when we were in the middle of candidating here, trying to sort out where to go, and she sat down with us and gave us advice as to where to go, profound advice. Dory has this story. Here's the snapshot of Dory. She grew up in a home where she was not loved in any way, shape, or form from her parents. When she would seek a hug from a mother or father, she would be told, no, you're, you're too ugly to love and would not be touched or hugged. Frequently, they would say to her, why can't you be pretty like your sister? She would sit and she'd watch. She was the older. She would sit and watch her younger sibling be hugged, hugged, loved, and treated with gifts and presents, and her nothing because they said, you're ugly. These are parents. 
She was stuck at six years old being the oldest to watch over the other siblings when the parents would, would go out. They'd go out and they didn't want to waste money on electricity. They would go out and tell Dora, you do not turn a light on. So they would sit there, these kids would sit there in absolute darkness waiting for someone to come home and then hopefully feed them, though the other kids got fed first and she only if there was something left because she was too ugly to love. Uh, one day, mom came home, mom and dad came home and announced to them that uh, we are not, that we're done taking care of you. We're going we're gonna to we're gonna give you to people who can really take care of you nicely, a new place. Pack them up that day, pack them up, dropped them off at an orphanage with no emotion, set them at the front door and walked away. End of, end of that story with parents. She said in the orphanage, she was beaten just about every single day, either for not eating all of her food for, or for bullying because she said, you know, when you, when you aren't loved, you begin to not love anyone. And she said, beaten every single day. But the worst she said when they would come to, when the new family would come, parents, adults would come to look for an orphan to adopt and they would literally line them all up. And these parents, these prospective parents would walk in and they would hoo, you know, coo and, 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 and fuss over the pretty ones and cute ones and they'd walk by her because she was totally to be loved. Never adopted. Never adopted. Just that pain that she went through. Uh, one time she's a young girl and a group of Christian college students came on to, to the orphanage and did like a week of Bible school. And during this Bible school time, one of them sat down and said, I want you to know to these kids that God loves you even if no one else does. And she sat there thinking, could this possibly be true? And she made God speaking to her in this moment, said it was true. And so a real simple flight out, she made me and said, she said, listen, if you're willing to love me in spite of my ugliness, then I will follow you. She gives her heart to Jesus. Doesn't even know what that means. Shortly after that, one of the orphanage workers, a new worker comes and this happens to be a Christian and Dory's one of the oldest kids now because no one's, no one's adopting her. She's going to be there forever. And so this worker invites Dory and takes her with her to her church every Sunday where she grows and grows in the church, grows up loving Jesus, following Jesus. One of the first Sundays she's there, there's a missionary that is there speaking that day who just weeks before was released from a Japanese internment camp. This is World War II. Uh, she, was a, she, was a, she and her husband were missionaries in Japan. During the war, they were arrested for eight years. She put in under arrest, four of those years in a prison. Her husband died at the hands of the Japanese. She had just gotten off the boat home just weeks earlier and she's at this church and she, re she relays to the people this inc the incredible suffering that she'd gone through, even the loss of her husband. And Dory couldn't believe her ears when this woman stood there and said this. After listening to all of these things she's endured, she then said this, and if I had the chance to do it all over again for the sake of Jesus, I would do it all over again. And this girl said, I want that. And um, begins a relationship with this, with this missionary. If you read the story, you'll find that Dory marries a, a fellow. They become missionaries. Incredible story. But she becomes friends with this missionary. This missionary tells her parents about Dory and about the story. And Dory's 21 years old now. And these parents call her to say, we heard this, your, we know your story, and we want you to know that from this day forward, we are your mom and dad. We adopt you. And she would go on to say, at 21, finally adopted by someone. And I would suggest to you, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you are adopted by the one that matters. But I say that because we have these moments in our lives, women, where we don't see a future. 
And Dory would say she sat there with absolutely no hope for a future, bent over, with the only view being dark, and the only view being so far ahead, you just can't see what's in front of you. So women, I need you to be this woman in the story for a moment, right now. I want you to think and feel what it might be like to be her in that condition. And some of you don't have to work real hard to figure that one out. You're this woman. Why are you in church? Maybe you heard that Jesus would be there. Maybe you thought it was a place of hope. Maybe you thought that maybe hope would be found there on this particular day. Maybe you're there every week and you show up early and, and, you, and, and you stay late hoping something happens. Or maybe you're there every week and you, you come late and you leave early so that people don't have to look at you. Um, but feel a little bit for this woman and feel how she might feel. And then think about this. It's been 18 years, but 17 years, 11 months earlier. So whatever, let's assume for a second she's been in this kitchen for 18 years. But 11 years and, and uh, 17 years and 11 months earlier just happened. And what do people say when things like that happen in a person's life? They go, well, don't worry, it won't be like this forever. Oh, you'll get better. Yeah, I don't know what's going on, but it won't last. Kind of like 2000 and 2020 when COVID first hit and they came on and said, listen, just mask up for two weeks and it'll all be done. Yeah, not done yet. I'm guessing people would have said to her, yeah, this won't last. But you're her and you've realized that it is lasting and this is now your life. And the Bible adds this to the story, that she was afflicted by a spirit of infirmity. That's the actual translation, that she was afflicted by the spirit of infirmity for 18 years. Now, there's one of two meanings it can have. We're not sure exactly which is the exact meaning for this application, but I would also say both fit. One would be this. It could mean that she had a spirit afflicting her, meaning a demonic spirit, that Satan, one of Satan's demonic spirits have inflicted this suffering in her life. Possible? The second one is this, it could also mean that she had this inner emotional being, a spirit of infirmity, meaning this, her, she physically became sick and her spirit has been attacked. There's been a spirit of infirmity that's hit her emotional spirit. She now lives with a spirit of brokenness. She now lives with a spirit of sickness. She now lives in this spirit of, abs- the spirit of infirmity. It's weighing on her and, and it's killing her. And either way, her outer condition is a very, very accurate reflection of her inner condition. Her heart is broken and her spirit is broken. Something happened 18 years ago that has now become a defining moment in her life. She's now defined by her brokenness. Here she is in church. Um, Is she just there to fulfill her duty? Is she there each week hoping for something more? But once again, Jesus calls to her out of the crowd, and he tells her to come forward. Now, I would say to you that if you're in the crowd, you're completely bent over, the only way that you can actually see forward is to turn sideways so you can see where you're headed. I would suggest to you no easy thing in a crowded synagogue for someone to say, hey, a lady, bent over, come forward. No easy thing to do. So how do you feel at that moment, ladies? How do you feel in that moment? Bent over, can't see a thing, and all of a sudden he's shouting for you, the woman bent over, I want you to come forward. How do you feel about that? You come forward knowing that every single eye is upon you? Or do you turn around and head out knowing still the eyes are upon you, but at least you'll get out of their view? 
And then in verse 12, it says this, when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. So he sees her, says, hey, you, come on up here. You're going to be set free from your infirmity. But notice in verse 13, it also says, next verse, then he puts his hands on her and immediately she is straightened up and praises, praises God, which means she has to actually come forward for her to be healed. He doesn't say, hey, stand up. You're healed. No, he says, stand up. You're going to be healed, but you've got to come forward. He calls her forward. He's about to do something great in her life that for at least 18 years she would have said is completely impossible. Now listen, people, listen. Oh, please listen. Your broken life is about to become a testimony to the grace and glory of God. But it all depends what you do when he calls your name. Now let's learn another lesson, one last lesson to add to the two from the men. First one, stand up. Second one, take a risk. New lesson for this woman is, for us is this. Then take the first step. Stand up. Take a risk. But then take the first step. Jesus says, come up here. Well, you can't get there without taking a step forward. Well, she takes that step, and then the next, and then the next, and then the next. And then he puts his hands on her, and immediately she straightens up, and she praises God. And guess what it doesn't say? It doesn't say anything about her faith. What was she? What's the word? Obedient. That's it. He said to come forward, and she did. That's all. Can you imagine her feelings? I mean, again, put yourself in the picture. He says, stand up. Straighten up. And when she does, is it instant? I mean, like. Do you hear bones crack? Does she get up like me getting out of a chair? <laughs> okay, somebody help me. <laughs> I can do this. Come on, kids, grab a hold. How did that happen in that moment? But think about this. No, regardless of whether it's quick or slow, in that moment, she is no longer defined by a sickness or a condition. She is now not the bent over woman. She's now defined by a miracle. She's now defined by the grace of God. So what about you? How do you fit into one of these two stories? If we could see beyond the surface, if we could see beyond the mask, if we could see beyond all the stuff we hide really, really well, I'm guessing we'd see a lot of people that look like these two. Bent over, carrying a burden, something dried up, something withered, some dream. I bet we'd see some similarities. People with some part of their life that's just broken bent over and carrying the burden of the world and a spirit of darkness. So let's get the last two observations and we quit. First observation is this. Notice in both of these stories that neither the man or the woman ever say a word. Neither one say a word. You say, was that significant? Absolutely. You know why? Because talk is cheap especially at the beginning of a new year. I have a New Year's resolution, and I'm going to be faithful to it this year. This year I'm losing weight. I don't care what happens. Okay. It's so good they don't say anything because chances are if they said something, they'd probably say something that they can't even pull off. And the beauty of it is, folks, you don't do anything. You don't say anything. Don't say one word. If God's calling you, obey. Just obey. Second thing I want you to note from the story is they weren't believers. These were not disciples. 
We have and no indication these were followers of Jesus. Nope. In order for you to have your life redefined by Jesus, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus. Just obey him. It's a pathway, it's a starting place. Now, if you want to be redefined over and over and over again, then follow him. But the starting place is you don't have to have any great faith in him. They didn't. They just obeyed. What do you know that God wants you to do in your life? Do it. Is your life defined by brokenness or wholeness? Is your life defined by some deficiency or by God's all-sufficiency? Is your life defined by a wounding or is your life defined by grace and a healing? Is it defined by grief or grace? How is your life defined by Him? Is your life defined by the opinions of others or is your life defined by the glory of God? I would say to you, have a great, great new year. And you get to choose how your life is defined and redefined by any one of these moments. If you'll follow the example of our two people from our stories, because the stories are actually profound and it all starts with obedience. Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your truth. These are stories that I have read and many of us have read over and over and over again and, and yet we read them now and see yet new truth coming out. I love the fact that these two don't say anything because I am so, I am so quick to make promises that I can't keep. I ask that you would show me that the starting place and anything that you want to do in my life is obedience. Take the step. Teach all of us that. Remind us of those truths. The beginning of the redefining of our lives and any given moment that will happen in the course of this year in front of us will start with us simply being obedient to you. May that define our lives. Dismiss us in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.